morning. My name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Wilton Hills Church. And we are in the middle of this Animate series. This is the second of six messages on Animate. Animate meaning to breathe life into something, to bring something alive. What we're looking at is ways in which we can uh, breathe life and open ourselves up for God to breathe life into our relationship with him and be transformed by uh, this relationship. Uh, it is something that is profoundly, profoundly important and mostly neglected by the modern Western church. And already we've had a number of reports of, of, of people who uh, just testify about the impact that this is having on their spiritual life. Uh, a whole new world is opening up to them. And so I'm encouraging you to be a part of this entire series, uh, to be involved in the, in the booklets that uh, we've made for this series, and to really be invested in this. Be open to God just rocking your world he's a living and true God and wants more than just a cerebral relationship with us. Uh, this message is entitled Flesh and Blood. These first two weeks are sort of foundational uh, to the rest of the series. We'll get into more particular applications of this as we go on. But this, again, is a foundational piece, flesh and blood. And let me start with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for every person who is in this auditorium and every person who's li listening via the computer or podcasting or television or any other means, whoever is listening and whenever they're listening, our prayer, God, is that you would open up our minds and their minds and our hearts and their hearts, our lives and your lives, that we would be entirely body, soul, and spirit surrendered to you, and that you would be a living Lord, active in our life, communicating to us on a moment-by-moment -moment daily basis and that we'd be transformed by this relationship. Help us, Lord God, to lower all defenses, to let you in, and to explore out new things and new ways of encountering you, and transform us to be your radical, sold-out, beautiful kingdom people. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. I want to start with a passage and a quote. The passage comes from John chapter 1, verse 14. It really is the proclamation of the center of the Christian faith. When John says that the Word, referring to Jesus Christ, became flesh, became human, united himself with flesh and blood. The Word, God Almighty, became flesh and made his dwelling among us, us other flesh and blood creatures. And we have seen his glory. Didn't just theorize about his glory, read a book about his glory, had an idea about his glory. We've seen his glory. Think about that. And then here's a quote from Richard Foster, who is probably, in my estimation, the most insightful author on the spiritual disciplines in our age. From his book, Prayer, Finding the Heart's True Home, he says this, to believe that God can sanctify and utilize the imagination is simply to take seriously the Christian idea of incarnation. Incarnation refers to the event when God became a human being. God became concrete and flesh, tangible, experiential. And to open up your imagination for God to utilize that, sanctify that, become a means by which you relate to God, is simply to take seriously that God is the God who incarnates himself, makes himself concrete, tangible, uh, experiential. I want us now to listen to a poem 
written and read by a friend of mine, uh, Terry Churchill. And the poem is entitled, Words. Listen very carefully. I've been trying to reach you, climbing a tower of words, babbling words, dead ink. My heart cannot speak this language, so it smiles politely and nods its head and pretends to understand. But your words are not like this. You opened your mouth and creation said yes and appeared from nothing, day and night, oceans and land, and me. All this with a few words. I want to hear you this way. I want to hear you in flesh and blood and blinding colors and music that carries me to you. Can you carve your meaning into my heart? Will you say to this motionless ink, rise and walk? It's powerful. We try to climb a mountain or a tower of words. It doesn't get us to God. It's like trying to build the Tower of Babel to reach the heavenlies, but it doesn't work because it's not the language our heart speaks. Here are some words. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. They're true words. They're powerful words. They're, they're inspired words, but if they remain only words, they're, as Terry says, motionless ink. People can know these words and believe in these words, and it does nothing to them. I mean, how many people have believed these words and recited these words, confessed these words, even studied these words? God so loved the world, and yet they didn't feel, they didn't experience God's love. Do you really know the meaning of love if it's not on the inside, if it's not flesh and blood? You can try to climb the tower of words, but it will just be babbling if it remains that because your heart doesn't speak that language. If words and abstract truths are all that you have to go on, you smile politely, you nod your head, you go to church, you pretend to understand. You know when to say amen, clap your hands, but, but you haven't got off the ground. You're not closer to God. What we need are words that are flesh and blood, words with blinding colors, words that are music that carries us to the throne of God. What we need is something more like this. Study this work of art. God so loved this woman. Can you place yourself in the position of this woman? This is the lady caught in the act of adultery in John 8. Dragged, disheveled into the center of the marketplace, surrounded by her self-righteous accusers, holding stones because the law said she should be stoned. Put yourself in the position of this shamed, humiliated woman, scared that her life's about to come to an end. And to bring her to the one person on the planet who actually has the right to do this, the one sinless person, Jesus Christ, and She's perhaps ex expecting to experience, experience the most austere, harsh look of all from him. But instead, he looks into her eyes. He looks into your eyes with compassion. 
and he stands in the gap and he protects you and he puts his hand upon your head and says, I will protect you from your accusers. You are that woman. I am that woman. And now God's soul of the world becomes enfleshed, becomes concrete. It begins to enter on the inside as we associate with this concrete picture. One of the values of art is that it does this. It enfleshes truth, makes it concrete, tangible. Here's some more words. You are forgiven. Wonderful words, true words, inspired words. They're proclaimed throughout the New Testament. But those words, if they just remain words, are motionless ink, dead ink, babbling words. They will not bring you closer to God in and of themselves. A person can believe these words and it will mean nothing to them. How many people have believed these words, have recited these words, confessed these words, studied these words? You are forgiven and yet they walk through their life with some degree of condemnation and unforgiveness in their life. The words never were incarnated in them, never became experienced realities. Do they even really understand what the word means if they haven't experienced it? You can try to climb the tower of words, but your heart doesn't speak that language. If words and abstract truth is all you have to go on, you smile politely, you nod your head, attend church, you know when to say amen, you pretend to understand, but you haven't got off the ground. You're not closer to God because you know these words. What we need are words that are flesh and blood, words that are blinding colors, words that are music that carry us to the throne of God. What we need is something more like this. Study this picture. Can you place yourself in the position of this man? with an anvil in one hand and the spikes in the other because he was one of the ones who crucified Jesus. And you are that person and I am that person because every sin helped drive the spike into his wrist and his ankles. And when we're exhausted by the hard work of crucifying the Savior, sin is exhausting. And if we can finally come to ourselves, come to the end of ourselves and collapse in his arms, he's there. And he whispers the words, I forgive you. And I will hold you up. And you are my child. Can you put yourself in the position of this man? See, it's not information that impacts us. That's not the language of the heart. It's flesh and blood, concrete, tangible truth that gets on the inside of us. And that changes us. When God speaks, as Terry noted, it's not primarily to convey information. When God speaks, reality occurs. As Terry so eloquently put it, you opened your mouth, the creation said yes, and appeared from nothing, day and night, oceans and land, and me. All this with a few words. When God speaks, reality occurs. Flesh and blood, stars and sun, animals and air, quarks and quasars, mountains and meadows, clouds and canyons, concrete, tangible, experiential reality. When God speaks, that's the way his words look. They're flesh and blood, concrete, tangible words. And it's not just once upon a time that God spoke that. It's now. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 1 that the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining, note the tense there, 
sustaining here and now all things by his powerful word. What it means is that you and I are right now held in existence, sustained in existence by the powerful word of Jesus. And you are not an abstract concept. You are not a piece of information. You are flesh and blood. You're tangible. You're experiential. That's the kind of word that God holds in existence each and every moment. And now remain mindful of the fact that that power which holds you and I in existence this very moment, moment to moment, that powerful word was most perfectly expressed on Calvary when Jesus gave his life for us. Which means that you and I right now, this moment, are held in existence by perfect, unsurpassable love. The breath you just took, you got as a, as a gift from God, an expression of his perfect love. Every nanosecond you exist, he's sustaining you by his perfect love. And you are not an abstract and you're not a piece of information. You're concrete, flesh and blood, tangible, experiential truth. God's love sustains, brings into existence and sustains concrete, tangible, experiential flesh and blood truth. God loves concrete, tangible, experiential truth. He creates it. He pronounces it good. That view, by the way, is the opposite of what the ancient Greeks used to believe. Ancient Greeks like Plato had a disdain for flesh and blood, for the concrete physical world. They saw matter the physical world, as being at best imperfect, somewhat unreal, and some of them saw it as absolutely evil. And so they believe that God has nothing to do with the physical flesh and blood world. For that reason, they put abstract truth up on a pedestal over concrete experiential truth. For Plato and for other ancient Greeks, math was the highest form of knowledge because it's the farthest removed from the the concrete, tangible world. Plato had above the door of the academy where he taught, all who enter here must study mathematics. It was, it was the queen of the science for the ancient Greeks because it was removed from the physical world. And then, as we mentioned last week, they divorced the mind from the heart. The mind, they thought, was simply pure rationality and, and, and math is its appropriate uh, form of thought. But the heart is the emotion. And they looked down on emotion. They put the mind over the heart. And they saw emotions as sort of an inferior thing. Why? Because they realized that that emotions are impacted by the concrete physical world. Emotions come and go based on what's happening to you. And emotions are looped into what you experience and, and what you sense and what is tangible to you. Emotions are looped up with the physical world that is at best somewhat unreal, imperfect, and some of them saw as absolutely evil. So they judged emotions as being inferior to pure rationality. And God was divorced from all of that. God was absolutely apart from this world, and God was, quote-unquote, above having any kind of emotions or being impacted by anything in this physical world. And that view, unfortunately, exercised quite a significant influence in church history on the church's theology. It's one of the reasons why most of the main theologians in church history defined God as sort of an abstract mathematical principle. God is above emotions. God is above movement. God is above time. God is above passion. God is above being affected by anything. God looks more like a mathematical principle than the living God of the Bible. But how different is the living God of the Bible? The living God of the Bible loves flesh and blood. He creates it. He sustains it moment by moment. The God of the Bible is very much involved in this flesh and blood world. 
and throughout the Bible. He doesn't give us some abstract mathematical truths, some propositions about himself. He gives us this narrative full of life, full of passion. He's a God who is deeply affected by what goes on in, in the ebb and flow of our life. We impact him and he impacts us. And there's emotion and passion all over the place. And when God communicates himself to us, it's not with abstract mathem mathematical-like propositions. No, he communicates himself to us using vivid metaphors that activate our imagination and gives us ways of thinking and picturing him and experiencing him. He portrays himself as the groom of a lover. He portrays himself as a, as, as a shepherd, a fortress, a rock. When he calls people out, he doesn't tell them to philosophize about them. He gives them visions and he gives them dreams. And the word, by the way, that is translated sometimes vision and sometimes dreams is the word to see. It's a seer. But they're not talking about seeing with physical eyes. No, visions and dreams are what occur in what we today would call our imagination. And that's how God concretely impacted his people and communicated himself to his people. And he uses a wide variety of concrete, tangible ways of leading his people. He's a pillar of fire. He's a cloud of smoke. He's the angel of the Lord and things like that. God is a God who loves, creates, involves himself in the flesh and blood world. And the story culminates when God not, not only loves the flesh and blood world, but he becomes part of the flesh and blood world. He immerses himself into our flesh and blood, concrete, tangible, experiential world. The word, John says, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory. God becomes concrete, tangible, physical flesh and blood in the person of Jesus Christ. And this is the center, the center of the Christian faith. John, in particular, can't get over uh, exalting the, the tangibility, the concreteness of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Look how he opens his first epistle. It's amazing. In the first epistle of John, he says, that which was from the beginning, referring to the eternal word, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, and we have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen, what we have heard. Okay, John, we get it. But see, this is a million miles removed from the Greek view of God, where you go to God by thinking abstract philosophical thoughts, and God is seen as a mathematical truth that's above uh, motion and emotion. John is emphatically celebrating the tangibility, the concreteness of God in the person of Jesus Christ over and over again. We've seen, we've heard, we've looked, we've, looked, we've touched, he's appeared. We've seen, we've heard, we've looked, we've touched, he's appeared over and over again. And even after the resurrection, Jesus' body is transformed for sure. But even after the resurrection, it's concrete, it's tangible, it's experiential. He says this to his disciples. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Forever God has taken upon himself this incarnate form. God is not an abstract, mathematical, timeless, emotional principle. He's not the opposite of this concrete world. He loves the physical world. He made the physical world. He sustains the physical world. And in the fullness of time, he became part of this physical world. In Christ, God is tangible, concrete, and experiential. And the reason why that is, among other things, so important is that we are made in this image of God, a God who has this impulse to become incarnate, 
this impulse to be involved in flesh and blood. We're wired by our Creator to be transformed and moved by concrete experience rather than mere information. We now know from neuroscience, though we could have known it, and many have known it just by doing introspection, but we now know from neuroscience that the Greeks had it exactly wrong. They divorced abstract thinking from the emotions, and the heart and mind were two separate faculties. But what we now know from neuroscience, and you can find this out just by looking inside yourself, but we think our thoughts are, are concrete. We think with concrete experiential images, not with abstract information. And all of our thought has an emotional component to it. The mind and the heart, as I said last week, are simply two aspects of the same thing. We think by replicating concrete experience in our minds. We think with all five senses. When we think about something, we re-experience it in our mind. When I think about my wife, Shelly, I don't get a bunch of information in my head that tells me where she was born and what her physical characteristics are like and what her personality is like. It's not abstract information. No, when I think about my wife, Shelly, it looks something like this. I see her. I sense her. I feel her. Sometimes I smell her. I, I can taste her. She, all five senses are involved when I think about Shelly. The same set, and this is what we know from neuroscience, roughly the same set of neurons, the neural net that is activated when I'm in Shelly's presence gets reactivated when I'm not in Shelly's presence, but I'm thinking about her. The only difference is that when I'm just thinking about her and she's not around, she's not there to provide the external stimuli to activate the neurons. My own thinking does that. But I re-experience her on the inside. That's how we think about everything. You can't think otherwise. Now, if you ask me about Shelley, I have to give you information. I'll tell you about where she was born and her physical characteristics and how gorgeous she is and, and, and her personality and things like that. But I give you the information because I can't give you what I'm actually doing inside my head. I can't give you the experience. I can just give you abstract information. And see, here's the thing. We think with concrete images at one three thousandths of a second. Most of it we're not aware of. And so people often think that the information they give about a topic when they're asked is the information they have in their brain. They think that we think with information because that's what comes out of their mouth when they're asked a question. But as a matter of fact, the information we give to others is always at least one step removed from what's actually going on in our head. It's abstract. And so it doesn't have the concrete power of the actual images that are being uh, that are taking place in our head and all of this information all of this uh, 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 the concrete images are associated with emotions the heart and the mind are not two separate things they're one in fact and here's an important principle the more lifelike the more concrete the more vivid the more experiential the image is as we're thinking about it the more power it has in our life a couple weeks ago, I was in uh, Vancouver uh, doing a conference, and uh, we in the afternoon went out and uh, just kind of toured the city, and it's a beautiful city with these mountains all around it, and uh, we were looking at some of the mountains, and I had a passing thought about Shelly, and I thought, gosh, I wish she was here. But there's a little tinge of, oh, I wish she was here, but it wasn't like real profound. It was a passing thought. But later on in that day, I had an occasion to kind of enter into that thought and to think about her more deeply. I imagined what she was doing at this time. I, I kind of envisioned her playing with our granddaughter. 
And it was vivid, it was concrete, it was experiential, much more so than the first thought I had about her. And now my heart was moved and I missed her and love was evoked inside of me. The more concrete, the more vivid, the more experiential our images are, the more power, power they have to impact us. This is why advertisements are so powerful. Advertisers don't give you a whole lot of information. Have you noticed that? What they give is concrete, vivid images. They may have to give a little bit of information for legal purposes, and that's why they read, uh, you know, at the end of those uh, medication advertisements at about a million words per second. Uh, warning, warning, this, you'll, you'll die from this. You'll probably die from this. It may make you sick. And they're hoping you don't notice that part, but they want you to get the image. It's the image that matters. It's why so many of our commercials have sexual themes to them because people uh, seem to, I'm told, have an easy time getting very vivid with regard to uh, sexual imagery. And so advertisers try to associate their product with sexual imagery, whether it has anything to do with that uh, or not, and usually it doesn't. You see, what they're doing, and if you're an advertiser, God bless you, you have unsurpassable worth and you have to make a living, fine. But <laughs> the rest of us, see, what they're doing is they're, they're implanting images in our brain and it's kind of like, you know, uh, those, when you're on the internet, if you go to certain sites, they, they install cookies. You heard about this? Cookies on your, on your computer that will pop up with these advertisements that you didn't invite there, but they're there. Okay, and, and they're hoping that those cookies will somehow, those advertisements will lead you to their product. Well, what these folks are doing through a lot of different venues are installing cookies in our organic computer called our brain between our ears. And they're hoping under the right triggers... Uh, their advertisement will pop up in that concrete, vivid imagery and it will move you with some kind of emotion to orientate you towards their product. It's not information that impacts you, it's concrete images. And, and the advertisers know how the brain works and so they co communicate with concrete images. This is also why memories can be so powerful in our life, for better or for worse. When we go through real profound experiences like traumas, our brain locks that in and it wants to do us a favor by protecting us from that ever happening again. And so under the right triggers, it could be a smell, it could be the look of somebody, it could be anything. Under the right triggers, your mind will reflash the image. Whether it's visual, whether it's kinesthetic, you sense it. Uh, whether it's auditory, it's what you hear. It can happen in a lot of different ways. We're all wired differently. But in some way, you represent that trauma. Represent, look at that word, re-present. You make present again that trauma, that image. And it happens so fast, one three thousandths of a second, you don't know that you're re-experiencing that trauma. But you feel it, you feel it. And there are some women today who walk around and uh, the cookies have been installed and a couple dozen times a day they're re-experiencing, let's say, a rape. And they don't know that they're doing this, but they, are, they, they struggle with this fear that they have or the anger that they have or the depression that they have. The brain thinks it's doing them a favor and will keep on doing that until it gets reprogrammed, until we take authority and bring every thought captive to Jesus Christ. But notice it's not information. No one gets information about what happened in the past. They re-experience it. It's concrete, vivid, experiential. Here's what's sad is that uh, science now knows how the mind operates and the world knows how the mind operates and advertisers certainly know how the mind operates with concrete, vivid imagery. But the church, to a large degree, does not. Under the influence of Greek philosophy, we still, we still tend to exalt abstract truth over concrete, experiential truth. 
Under the influence of the naturalistic worldview, many still dismiss imagination as just make-believe, as just child's play, fantasy, pretend. And then more recently, under the impact of the New Age movement, which in its own way uses imagination, some Christians are absolutely terrified of the very word imagination or the word visualize. They've got cookies installed there that the minute you say imagination, their fear button gets pushed and they have a lot of trouble even listening to what you're saying. I've heard from some of those folks. You see, and the the result of this is is this. The world knows how the mind works and communicates in concrete, vivid imagery. We have all these memories and all these advertisements coming at us with this concrete, vivid, experiential, transforming imagery. And much of it contains lies, things that are not consistent with the truth of who God is and who we are in Christ. But because it's concrete and vivid, it moves us uh, in in, in non-kingdom directions. That is what we identify as real. And all we have to fight that with are abstract truths and sometimes some oughts and shoulds attached to that. Explains why there's so many believers who believe the truth and yet everything about their being says it's not real. It's why there's so many who believe the truth and yet they find themselves pulled in such strong ways to live in ways that are contrary to the kingdom, to engage in sin and, 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 and sell out to the values of the culture. Because that feels real to them, this seems like a mere belief. You can't fight concrete, vivid, experiential images in the mind with abstract truths and a list of oughts and shoulds. It's time, folks, that we recover a flesh and blood theology. It's time that we take back the imagination for God. Because God is the author of the imagination. He wired the imagination. He's the one who wants to own the imagination. He wants us to use that precious imagination as a way of relating to him. What we need is to, to experience uh, God with, in flesh and blood with blinding colors and music that takes us to the throne of God. We need a Lord that we can with John touch and see and hear and experience. We need God to speak into our, our, our motionless ink Rise up and walk, animate, take on life, become incarnate, become experiential, and be transformed. But you may be thinking to yourself, well, how is that possible? Because Jesus, the physical Jesus, is gone. John could say that because he knew the historical physical Jesus, but now he's ascended, so we we don't have that. And God is invisible, and even the truths about our identity in Christ and all that, those are intangible, so how can we have a flesh and blood theology? And the answer to that, ladies and gentlemen, is the inner sanctum. That's why God gave it to us. The inner sanctum, this place of the imagination, is the place where we bridge the concrete flesh and blood world in which we live with the spiritual truths that are proclaimed in the Bible. Here we experience God, Jesus, our identity in Christ and every other spiritual truth in concrete, flesh and blood, tangible, blinding color kind of ways. This isn't inferior to the abstract truths as the Greeks thought. This isn't just make-believe as the naturalistic worldview might incline you to think. And it's certainly not a New Age conspiracy. This is biblical truth. The truth of the Bible. So just by by way of review, we saw this last week. In 2 Corinthians 3, listen to this carefully. And speaking about non-believers, Paul says, their minds were made dull. He's talking about the mind. A veil covers their hearts, remember? In the biblical worldview, heart and mind are not two separate things, two sides of the same coin, two sides of the same reality. 
If our gospel is veiled, he says, it is veiled to those who are perishing because the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see in their minds the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Non-believers have blinders over their imagination so they can't enter into the reality, the concrete reality of who Jesus is. They can't see that in their minds. By contrast, Paul says, whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil over the mind, that's what he's talking about here, is taken away. So that we all with unveiled faces contemplate, as I said last week, the word means to behold and reflect in the mind. We behold the Lord's glory, and as we do that, we're being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. For God made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Jesus Christ. Those who have turned to the Lord have something, have a capacity that those who haven't turned to the Lord don't have. We're able to see and experience in our mind, in our hearts, the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. And as we see and behold his glory, we're transformed into that glory. We take it on from one degree to another. The key to experiencing God in a concrete, transforming way is exercising the vision of our unveiled heart and unveiled mind and beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You find this theme in various ways throughout the New Testament. For example, in Hebrews chapter 2, a verse I didn't get to last week, he says, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Well, Jesus had been gone for decades when the author wrote this. So what kind of seeing is he talking about? I can imagine somebody who maybe didn't get this in the audience going, okay, we're supposed to fix our eyes on Jesus. Where is he? He's in the crowd. Would Jesus stand up? I got to fix my eyes on you. And the author would say, no, dude, that's not the kind of seeing I'm talking about. What kind of seeing is he talking about? He's talking about the same kind of seeing Paul was talking about. It's a seeing in the inner sanctum, the mind, the heart, the imagination. And as we fix our spiritual eyes on Jesus, uh, all that is his by nature becomes ours by grace, and now we can run with perseverance the race that is set before us. It's what you see in your mind that determines the direction that you go. Another verse, Colossians chapter 3. Listen to this carefully. Paul says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Glorious truth. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds, remember, heart and mind are not two separate things. Set your minds on things above. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. The word phreneo there, translated mind, includes the imagination. In fact, in some contexts, it's translated just as imagination. So he's talking about setting our whole mind, including our imagination, on things above. And, and here's the thing. The truth, the gospel truth that Paul proclaims here is that we are, in fact, raised with Christ Jesus. We have, in fact, died to the way of the world, the flesh way of living in this world. We have, in fact, been placed in Christ Jesus. Our life is, in fact, hidden in Christ Jesus in the heavenly realm. But those will be lifeless ink to you, mere words babbling, unless your imagination, your whole being, is set on these truths in a way that you're experiencing these truths. What you need is to, with your unveiled capacity in your mind and heart, 
get a glimpse of concretely, vividly what you look like when you really manifest the truth that your life is hidden in Christ. What do you look like? What do you sound like? How do you do your life differently? See it in your, in your mind's eye, in the sanctified imagination. What do you look like when you walk as a person who in fact has been raised with Christ Jesus, who in fact has died to the ways of the world, who in fact is filled with God's Spirit, who in fact is seated with Christ in heavenly places? It's not just knowing it that's going to transform you. It's can you get on the inside of that and let it get on the inside of you and begin to experience that in concrete, vivid, tangible ways. The imagination is the bridge between the invisible spiritual world and the world of flesh and blood. It is, as they said throughout church history, the inner sanctum. And despite the heavy influence of Greek philosophy on the church's theology, there have been people throughout history who have seen this. For example, one was Origen. And this is all the more surprising because Origen was very influenced by Plato. And yet he says this in his homily on Genesis. This is uh, occurring in the early 3rd century. Listen to this. He goes, Let us therefore always fix our gaze on this image of God, referring to Jesus, so that we might be able to be reformed in its likeness by contemplating, which is beholding in the mind, the divine image in whose likeness God has made us, we will receive through the word and his power that form which he had given him by nature. What Origen is saying here is this. As we gaze in our mind, in our imagination, on the glory of God, the image of God, all that is his by nature begins to be ours by grace. As we are, are able to behold, experience concretely the grace of God towards us, we become more gracious. As we see his love towards us, we become more loving. As we see his joy over us, we become more joyful. We are transformed from one degree of glory to another, just as Paul says. What Origen is hitting on here is this. And note, this is in the third century now, way before the New Age movement. Notice that. But he's saying the incarnation, the enfleshment of God, is not simply to be of an advantage for those who happen to have the good fortune of being alive when Jesus was a historical person down here on earth. I mean, that would be weird, wouldn't it, if Jesus says, if you see me, you see the Father, and the only ones who can benefit from that are the 12 people who are around hearing it for the first time. And everyone after that, it's of no value whatsoever. No, when Jesus says, if you see me, you see the Father, he's giving a truth. It's recorded in the book of John, chapter 14. He's giving a truth that is of benefit to believers throughout history. If we utilize the unique spirit-filled capacity that we have to see, with our, the, see in the spirit, see with the mind and the heart, how can you see what God is like through the person of Jesus Christ if you don't see Jesus? It's true that he's not physically here, but we have got the inner sanctum where the, that is the bridge between the spiritual realm and the physical realm. Uh, uh, J.I. Packer, who's a great man of God and a great theologian and says some wonderful things, in his otherwise great book, Knowing God, gets it exactly wrong. <laughs> when he says... He encourages their believers uh, to never try to envision concretely God or Jesus or anything of the sort. That's like telling me, Greg, make sure that you know, love your wife for sure and think about her, but, but don't ever picture her. Don't get a concrete image of her. Don't experience her in your mind. Well, how else do I think about her then? I, that's what it means to think. You know, it's, and, and though he doesn't realize it, that's what it means for him to think as well. But what it means is that 
the incarnation then is of no value to, all, to any who, who, who are, are coming to faith after Christ ascended to heaven. We're back to the, sort of the Old Testament thing where God's just sort of this invisible thing. The whole value of having God come down in a concrete, tangible, experiential way and say, if you see me, you see the Father. Well, then that's just ruled out unless we're able and allowed to encounter the living incarnate God in our heart, in our mind, in our imagination. And that's what Paul's talking about. And that's what Origen is talking about. And this, they both say, is the key to transformation. You become what you see in your heart and mind. Another is St. Francis de Sales, a 16th century author, who says, by means of the imagination, listen to this, we confine our mind within the mystery on which we meditate. That it may not ramble to and fro just as we shut up a bird in a cage or tie a hawk by his leash so that, we may re- so that he may rest on the hand. St. Francis, 16th century, a long time before the New Age movement, talking about what? Imagination. And what he realizes there is that, as many of us can testify, uh, unless we're using the imagination in our prayer, our brain's going to be fluttering around all over the place like a bird let loose in a room. Can anyone else testify to that? Now we know neurologically why that's the case. We're wired for reality. and We identify reality as what's concrete, what's flesh and blood. And so if your relationship with God is abstract, when you're praying, you're talking to an abstraction. And guess what? Your mind's going to say, well, let's turn to more important things that are real, like the laundry list and the groceries you need to get and how you're going to discipline your, your, discipline your first grade son when he gets home. Those things are real. And, and, and this here, this abstraction, we just don't experience as real. And so our minds are always darting all over the place. And then we indict ourselves for that happening. How come I can't be disciplined and concentrating? Well, see, the, the, what St. Francis sees us here is the issue is that the things of God have got to become concrete, vivid. We need our prayer life to become as, as vivid as the beer commercials that we see on television, all right? Something concrete, experiential. And when you do that, when you're talking to Jesus and, 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 and you sense Jesus and you can hear Jesus and you're seeing Jesus, now your mind's saying, okay, this is real. I'll pay attention to this. That's what St. Francis is getting at. Now the bird is in the cage and there's some attention there. St. Ignatius of Loyola, another 16th century writer, long before the New Age, thank you very much. He uh, had these retreats that people would go on for a whole month spiritual exercises, and they all involved imaginative prayer. Cataphatic prayer was called in the church tradition. He says this, it's not knowing a lot, but grasping things intimately and savoring them that fills and satisfies the soul. It's not how much you know. It's the little that you do know, is it true? And do you experience it? Do you savor it? Is it experiential? So profoundly true. In his work called Spiritual Exercises, which is simply a modern translation of this retreat he had, here's a little snippet. He says, when you pray, pray with all five senses. I want to encourage you to do that. All five senses. Get your whole self involved in this. When when you worship, worship with all five senses. And when you read the Bible, read it with all five senses. He says, see the persons with the eye of the imagination. For example, when you're reading the Bible, see them with the eye of the imagination. Imagine hearing what they say. Imagine I smell and taste the infinite savor and sweetness of the divinity. Look at the experiential quality of this. Imagine touching by embracing and kissing the place where the persons step or sit as they're reading a gospel narrative. Enter into it with all five senses. I want to ask the worship team to come on up, and we're going to go into another time of worship. And as we do this, I want to encourage you to use all five senses. 
And envision the one that we're singing to and praising. And envision what we're singing about. You may envision or, or just sense the presence of God in this room, holding you in existence every millisecond. Just be aware of that. That's the use of the inner sanctum, the imagination. As the rain falls on the top of this uh, building, on and off, you may just, uh, last service, I just used that to envision the Lord soaking me in his love, just concretely soaking me in his love. The Holy Spirit will lead you. Our job is simply to open ourselves up and say, Lord, make your truth tangible, concrete, experiential. Not, not motionless ink, but blinding colors. Music that carries us to the throne of God. Flesh and blood. We'll be taking up an offering uh, in this first worship song. That's a form of worship, a concrete, tangible form of worship. And then we'll go into another prolonged time of worship. You can stand if you want to stand or sit if that's an easier way for you to enter into this. But use all five senses. Holy Spirit, we now ask you to, you're the God who has an impulse to become incarnate. A God whose innermost being longs for tangible expression. Help us to receive you in that way and experience you deeply and be transformed by your glory. In Jesus' name. Amazing Lord, amazing love, isn't he? We're singing about the, like a flood, his mercy reigns. See, that could just be motionless ink, power of words we're trying to climb. But the Lord gave me his vision of just a torrential flood, like wiping away everything in his path, slaughtering everything in his path. And then it just drowns me. It just drowns me. It's, God that loves you and forgives you, has mercy on you like a biggest massive flood, a tsunami. Biggest tsunami you've ever seen. It's all directed towards you. I want to encourage you to be relating to God in all five senses. Have special times that you set aside where you just be with the Lord, put on some music, and encounter him with all five senses. And throughout the day, Take spiritual truths. Don't just have them be lifeless ink, but rather let the Lord say, rise up and walk, animate. And uh, make them flesh and blood, blinding colors, music that carries you to the throne of God. And see them and taste them and sense them. This is a seminar on the weekends, and, and so we encourage you to do the assignments. And in this series, the assignments are those books. Uh, Terry Churchill has just crafted some great exercises for groups and for individuals. And the groups are going through the group practices. We encourage everyone to go through all the practices, whether you're in a group or not. So if you don't have any of those books, stop by and pick those up uh, at the Hub. And be part of what God's doing here. Get, on the, get online. Check out the online community. Share your stories with, with others. But let God on the inside. Incarnate and fleshed on the inside. 
and manifest it to the world around us. I want to ask the prayer teams to come forward. And if you're here and have any need whatsoever you'd like to have prayed for, I encourage you to come forward and pray with these folks. Or if you'd just like to kneel, you're free to do that as well. If you want to sit for a little bit, we're going to keep just playing some music. And, and uh, if you want to just soak it in a little more, feel free to do that. Otherwise, God bless you folks. Meet the Lord in tangible, concrete ways and share his love with everyone you come in contact with. God bless.